And so he reads the poem and he brings it back to us. He says, guys, this poem that was written over 150 years ago is literally articulating this feeling, which is we have all these things that we've always wanted to do, but we've never done them because they're buried. And we said, well, yeah, let's, let's call this movie The Buried Life. From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, head of Lift Labs, and today we're sitting down with Ben Nempton, a New York Times bestselling author, TV producer, and motivational speaker. Ben created and produced The Buried Life, an MTV docuseries that explores the art of crossing items off your bucket list and helping others do the same. So far, Ben's own list led him to enjoying a beer with Prince Harry, swimming with sharks, and playing basketball with President Obama. But his bucket list wasn't just for fun. It was a way to unearth the feeling his dreams were buried. In this episode, Ben chats with my colleague Luke Butler about how he learned to adopt a lifestyle that wasn't ruled by fear and proves anything is possible. You'll hear Ben's advice on how entrepreneurs can balance work and personal goals and how not to feel guilty about the time you spend not working. We hope you are inspired to chase your own bucket list after this episode. Let's join Ben and Luke now live at Lift Labs. Yeah, so I grew up in Victoria, BC, which is a very idyllic place to grow up. I mean, it's very safe. You're on an island, beautiful. You're by the ocean, you're by mountains. So I was a very happy guy growing up. And I had graduated from high school, I was going to university in my hometown, which is a great university. I had a scholarship to go there. And I found out that I just made the U19 national rugby team. And and for me, you know, West Coast is, and especially Victoria's epicenter of rugby Canada and Canada rugby is, you know, it's a fairly big sport. So this was sort of, this was it for me. And I was, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to perform. And I had missed a big kick when I was in high school at a, at a championship game and we lost the game. And that kind of haunted me. And I thought, man, what if I do that again at the World Cup? You know, this is my big opportunity. What if I totally botch it? And these thoughts continued to come in my mind at night and I, it caused me to be un- unable to sleep. And this anxiety and this pressure that I put on myself and this worrying it slowly caused me to spiral down into a depression. And I had never experienced anything like this before prior to this point. And so it was something that just kind of got worse and worse and worse. And it, it got to the point where I couldn't go to school, right? And I, would, I was sort of frozen by indecision. And so that indecision ultimately would be a decision not to do whatever I was deciding to try and do, right? So I couldn't get out of the car and I would drive home and I, I dropped out of school. I lost my scholarship. I couldn't go to rugby practice. So I got dropped from the national rugby team. And it digressed to the point where I was shut into my parents' house and I was I was unable to really do any of the things that I used to do. I, and I and really had trouble leaving the house. And so my parents would just kind of encourage me to get outside, get fresh air every day, but that was about it. And this lasted for months and I was, you know, trying many things to try and get better, but I really, I didn't understand why or what was going on. And ultimately, there were some friends that convinced me to come in and work with them in a new town for the summer after I dropped out. And, and they corralled me and they got me out of the house, right? And, and then I started to 
feel a little bit back to myself. I got a job. I started meeting people that were inspiring. I started to talk about what I was going through and realizing that I wasn't the only one that was going through these things and led me to eventually talk with a counselor at school, which ultimately led me to talk with a therapist and, and really get on a road to realize why I was feeling like this. And I was starting to feel back to myself after this journey uh, to this new town and just kind of like working and and realizing that like, okay, I'm I'm okay, you know, and, and I've got work to do, but I, I'm starting to feel a little better. And, and I'm going to try and just surround myself with more people like these new friends that I met in this new town. Did, did your, your parents and your family and, and, and your friends, did they kind of know how to handle this? No, they didn't. I don't know how any parent is equipped to handle this. And I get this question probably more than any other question is like, what do I do? My son just dropped out of school. My daughter is struggling. My friend. And as parents, I think it's a really tricky place because as a, you know, from my position, I'm still at the age where I don't really want to listen to my parents. You know, I'm still rebelling against them a little bit or I don't truly digest everything that they're saying. And from their standpoint, that puts them in a very difficult position to help, you know? So they wanted me to talk with someone. I was like, no, I don't want to talk with a therapist, you know? And they felt totally helpless. When did you start to feel, I guess, do you feel comfortable talking about it? Is, does it get easier? When, like, what was that transition from um, maybe, uh, I don't know if shame is the right word, but like being ashamed of it to not quite knowing what it meant to then being confident enough to say, here's what I went through, here's what it means, here's how you can get out of it. It was stages, you know, sort of almost exposure therapy. I was, you know, the first time I talked about it, openly was actually on the show. I wanted to to help someone that was struggling with some sort of mental struggle. And so we found a story of a girl that lived in Rochester, Minnesota, you know, fairly small town, and she struggled with self-injury. So she cut herself and she wanted to make it okay to talk about this, what she was going through in her, in her town. And she didn't feel like she could. And so we worked with To Write Love in Her Arms, which is a great nonprofit. And we brought in a musician, Matthew Kearney, and we created a night where it was like music. I spoke, my friend Jamie from To Write Love and Arm spoke, and, and she spoke to her community about, hey, this is what I'm going through, and I'm, I haven't cut in X number of, of months. And I felt an obligation to open up about my story on the show if, she was, if I was going to ask her to open up about hers. And so that was the first time that I talked about it, and it was surface level. And this was, you know, this was 2010. And I was very scared to do that, right? Like, and then as I started speaking more and more, and especially in the last couple of years, when I started to learn about the mental health crisis and the rate of suicide, and I, again, felt a bit of an obligation. You know, if I'm going to tell my story, I really should tell the true full story. And that would, it entails opening up even more about this and talking about how I think we as communities and as individuals can help break the stigma around and also normalize this conversation so that we can take action and give actionable takeaway so that people know that one, it's okay. Two, here are some things that you, you can try that might help. And three, you're never alone. Yeah. For you, is it the kind of thing that you... Do you turn the corner on something like that? Does it feel like it's behind you or is it something that you kind of manage even today? It's something that I think I will always manage, you know? What's heartening about it is that I think as I grow, 
I learn about myself more and I understand more of the things that I need to be healthy and, you know, tools that I use or resources that I have that I can use. And the other thing that comes along with this age, (laughs) even though I'm still young, but as you grow, you, you start to have a more of an awareness and this awareness of because I've been through it a couple of times, I can see the signs and I'm able to say to myself, oh, it looks like I'm starting to go down this path. Therefore, I need to change this, do that. You know, I need to make sure I get sleep or I need to make sure that I take some time off. I need to get, you know, proper time with friends and family and that type of thing. So I think the awareness and yeah, I think that's probably the key. You know, after I came back from this summer away and I thought, you know, I'm going to be intentional about the people I hang out with. In high school, you have no choice. Outside of high school, you can choose. And there was a kid from the neighborhood who had, he was a self-taught filmmaker. He made movies in the summers. And I thought that would be so fun to make a movie. So I called him up. I said, his name is Johnny. I said, Johnny, you don't know me very well. You know, you took my sister prom. So you kind of know, I don't know, this is weird, (laughs) (laughs) but I want to make a movie. You make movies. Do you want to make a movie? And he said, yeah, you know, I was just talking to my friend, Dave, about something like this. Uh, I I remember Dave because he went to my high school. And I said, great, I'll call your older brother, Duncan. And the four of us got together. We started talking about this idea of a movie. Couldn't really decide on what it was going to be about. And then Johnny was at now McGill. This was sort of a couple months after we started talking. He's in English class, the professor uh, signs him a poem from 1852, 150 plus year old poem called The Buried Life, written by Matthew Arnold, an old English poet. And so he reads the poem and he brings it back to us. He says, guys, this poem that was written over 150 years ago is literally articulating this feeling that we're having that we can't articulate, which is we have all these things that we've always wanted to do, but we've never done them because they're buried. And they get buried by many things. They get buried by work. They get buried by school. They get buried by the day-to-day. And we have these moments when we're inspired, but that kind of eventually gets buried. And we said, well, yeah, let's, let's call this movie The Buried Life. And then, you know, we still didn't know what it was about. So next was thinking, how do we unbury our dreams? And we decided to ask this question, what do you want to do before you die? Because the thought of death was the one sobering thought that shook us enough to think, okay, what's important? It's interesting. That, I mean, you were a bunch of kids at the time. Why, why was for people as young as you, was mortality such a present issue? One of the reasons was that Duncan is one of the guys in the group. He had gone on a, a camping trip with a bunch of friends and one of his good friends had accidentally drowned. And so he'd lost his friend. And that was one of the first times that we had experienced death. You know, it wasn't first degree for me, but it was still eye-opening. The other thing is like, we, we didn't really want to be soft. <laughs> like we, if we were, our filter for this the whole time has always been like, what would our friends think? So we, we always were kind of doing this for our friends because we knew we had friends that wanted to start a restaurant and they were going to be a lawyer. And we thought, okay, how can we actually speak to our friends in a way they're going to listen? And it was never going to be telling them how to live their life. We didn't want people to tell us how to live our life. We thought maybe we can just ask them a question and then we can go and have as much fun as possible and hopefully they'll see, hey, I want to do something like that. And they'll sort of have a fear of missing out, but instead of about a party, it'd be about living life. So it was sort of a combination of those things. And, and so the bucket list spawned from that question. 
was there a moment where you realized this is more than a fun project for a bunch of friends? This, this could actually be something. It wasn't until we hit the road, you know, so we we beg, borrow, and stole enough to get together a two-week road trip. We bored an RV. We got a camera on eBay. We threw parties as fundraisers. We, we, we did whatever we could to go on this road trip to cross things off our list. And then the other thing was we were going to help other people cross things off their list. So that was the mission and make a little movie. And I remember there was a moment where about halfway through the first tour where Johnny and I checked our email inbox that we had created for The Buried Life for the first time. And we noticed that there were just we were getting this influx of emails from strangers, right? And they were asking us for help with their list. And we sort of looked at each other and we're like, wow, what, what's going on? And, you know, keep in mind, this is 2006. So this is pre-social, this is pre-things going viral. This was all driven by like local news and hey, four guys going after their bucket list. And it became this, this kind of movement of people helping us cross things off our list, asking for our help, and then we would help them but also being inspired to do their own list, right? And this is something that I never realized going into this. In fact, I thought that a bucket list was really kind of a selfish idea. But once so many people were inspired to go after their list through the act of us going after our list. So I realized there's this incredible ripple effect of when you do what you love, you inspire other people to do what they love. And that continues to sort of ripple out. One of the probably the the more high profile uh, items that you went after, and probably one of the hardest to achieve, was uh, you wanted to play basketball with the president of the United States. We did anything we could think of. I mean, we just threw everything against the wall. We would cold email any politician that we could find a publicly listed email for. We drove to D.C. We asked people on the street if they knew someone in the White House hey, or on Capitol Hill. We begged for meetings, lower level officials. We found that when we took a meeting, we could you know, about half the time convinced them to convince their boss to meet with us. And so we meet with their boss and we would slowly work up the ladder. And we actually got all the way up to the secretary of transportation. He's just bewildered about this meeting. He didn't understand why we were there, who we were. And finally, we were able to kind of articulate what we were doing. And he called the White House and he, he vouched for us. And we thought we, you know, we had a good shot. And, and then we got an official rejection from the White House. And this sort of started this whole process of us trying and failing, trial and failing. I mean, we went to the YMCA, saw the Secretary of Treasury doing laps, and I went into the pool with a towel with just my underwear, asked him as he came up for air if we could help us. You know, I mean, we just, it was absurd. I don't know if you know this, but you can leave a voicemail at the White House. So we left voicemails, we sent letters, and ultimately we left it as a failure. And what happened was, we did get the attention of the personal aid of the president and he tried to get to make it happen. And it, again, he, he, we failed. And he said, listen, if you guys are ever back in DC, let me know, I'll show you, I'll give you a tour of the White House. And so we went to the White House. By the way, if you go to the White House, <laughs> the way we entered, they sort of let you in and you you go to security, they let you in the, the White House. And then you're just, we were just in, we were just walking. We we're like, wait, and we didn't know where to go. And so we sort of went to the first door and sat down and hopefully someone would come and get us. And so finally, Reggie, the personal light of the president, Reggie Love at the time, gave us a tour. He's like, oh, let me show you the, the basketball courts. And we were just blown away. And there's a presidential basketball and the manicured hedges and a presidential seal on each hoop. And we're shooting around. And, and all of a sudden, President Obama strolls on the court. And we thought he was out of town. And he totally, I mean, we were just beside ourselves. Yeah. What and did he say to you? He said, hey guys, I uh, heard 
you're in town. Thought the least I could do is shoot a basketball. Is it your Obama impression? I kind of went. I kind of went halfway with it. (laughs) I wouldn't take it back. And what was funny, we asked him at the end. So we shot around with him for 15, 20 minutes. There was a photographer there from the White House, and he is like the, you know, when you're in high school and you have a friend's dad who's like the coolest dad ever. Yeah, he's like that times a million. So we immediately felt like he was just a friend somehow, and. We shot hoops with him. We were sort of trash talking as he, you know, he was trying to sh- hit shots we didn't hit. And and then as he was leaving, we said, oh, President Obama, do you, what do you want to do before you die? And he turns around and he says, I want to be an announcer for SportsCenter. <laughs> that was the most impossible thing we thought of. And having that come to fruition, we sort of had this thought like, oh, well, I guess you can do anything. No. You know, you sort of have, I realized that after a few of those bigger list items fell and and came off the list, it sort of changes the way you think and the way you operate and your sort of core belief systems. And so after that, you you realize, wow, it's not, can I do it? It's do I want to do it? And and do I want to put in the work that I know it will take to accomplish it? Yeah. I want to, in the the last few minutes that we have, I want to talk about, you have this, this passion for going after this list. This was your Essentially, the buried life was your startup. You you had this idea, you didn't quite know how to make it happen, but you you had a vision of what it could become. And a lot of the the founders that we work with are in the same boat. They're, it's very early. It's an idea written on a piece of paper. Talk about this notion of different ways of being passionate about something. One of the things that you hear a lot about is that good founders have to be obsessed with the, with the problem that they're trying to solve. They've got to you know eat, drink, and sleep what it is that their business is doing. And that, I don't think, is a particularly healthy way, uh, one, a healthy way of, uh, of approaching building, building a company, but probably not an effective way of doing it either and building a team around you. Talk about how you see being passionate about something and the best way to, to do that in a, in a way that maintains your own sense of self and, and balance and, and life. So there's two types of passion. There's obsessive passion and harmonious passion. And uh, harmonious passion is the good type of passion. That's the passion that drives you, that allows you to work extra hours. But it it allows you to also do things like hobbies, to hang out with your family, friends, do other things. Obsessive passion is when you are, you. there's no separation between you and your work. You identify completely uh, with your work. And you. it's hard for you to think about what you would be like without your work. You also feel guilty if you don't work and you don't have many other hobbies or, or passions that you do. It's, it's, it's all your work. Now, I think that as entrepreneurs, your passion becomes your work, right? Like you're something you feel so strongly about, you build it into a business. And so it is an extension of you and it's very easy to go down that obsessive passion route. And sometimes, by the way, you have to, right? Sometimes you have to obsessively passionate about this thing, but you can't do it forever. And so what I suggest is that one, build a bit of an awareness around this obsessive passion if that's if you feel like you're falling into that bucket and make sure that you, if you are going to be in that bucket, you give yourself a window to do that and make sure that you then take time for breaks, family, hobbies, other things, because that is 
going to, that's going to fuel your work, right? That's going to make you more effective. That's going to allow you to be there for your employees, your colleagues, your clients. And you can't take care of other people. You can't grow your business. You can't be a better version of yourself and grow if you don't take care of yourself. The reason I talk about a bucket list is because it's a digestible framework to understand that, okay, this is something that reminds me that my goals and personal goals exist. And if you don't have some sort of reminder that they exist, they get buried. I experience it. We all experience it. It just happens. So I don't know what the reminder you need will be. For me, a list helps. For other people, it might be a block in a calendar. It might be an accountability buddy that you check in with that, you know, you do these things together. But you want to stay out of the obsessive passion or at least dip out of it so that you can create that harmony in your life because it's just going to allow you to be a better entrepreneur. You've talked about the, the kind of the tools that help people uh, go after these sorts of goals. What, what, in your experience, is the thing that, that stops them from pursuing those goals? From research, fear is the number one thing that holds people back from going after their personal goals, the fear of failure or the fear of what other people think. And these are things that you, they're easy to say, and, and it's harder to actually get over these fears in action or like in, in, in practice because they're human fears. They, you know, there's a history of why we feel like this. So, but if you actually step back and look at them, the fear of what other people think, the truth is that people are just thinking about you much less than you think they are. So they're really worried about what other people are thinking about them. The fear of failure, if you're afraid to go after your goal or you're waiting for the right time, you already failed. So that, at least when you try and you fail, you learn something. So I think, again, the awareness of, of those fears and pegging them more as more of made up fears, like the, the feelings are real, but um, the actual consequences are, are less less so. You got a couple items left on the on the list, and then I guess you retire or something. Uh, <laughs> die, but, die. <laughs> uh, what's what's left? What are you going to be working on this year? So we've got uh, make a movie, which is something that we've been working on for the last you know decade. Uh, <laughs> and number one hundred is go to space, and that's sort of been the reason it's taken so long. Is we really want to do that one and and have that in the film in some way, shape, or form. And so we're actively pursuing a lot of different avenues for that and, uh, you know, chipping away at the documentary. And also my passion lately has been speaking. So I've just been traveling and talking about these things that I think are, yeah, they've changed my life. So I, I think that hopefully other people can get value out of them as well. And it's turned into, I never really intended to be a speaker, but it's just kind of turned out that way. The research says that 76% of people get to the end of their life and they don't regret the things they did. They regret the things they didn't do. And so if I can help just boost up that minority a little bit, let people know like, hey, listen, it's not selfish to go after your personal goals. It's actually important for your well-being. It's important for your well, the well-being of those around you. It's important for your company and it's important for your organization. And here are simple ways you can move yourself forward, write down your goals, share your goals, you know, just continue to persist. All these things start to build inspiration as you go. And they're really things that have, have worked for me. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more info and to find us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production.
This episode was produced by Kevin Shemidlin, with associate production by Angela Javazzi, mixing and editing by Max Graham, and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time. Thank you.